0: Whether you've been a Christian a long time, or whether you recently come to faith, or indeed whether you're still on the journey exploring Christianity, don't switch off if you've been a Christian for a long time, because these challenges are as fresh to us today as the first time you committed your life to Christ. Why is that? And that's because I'm calling it the elasticity effect the definition of elasticity is the ability of an object or material to resume its previous shape after being stretched. So if you pull a piece of elastic back and you let go, it goes back to its original form. And that's what it's like for us as human beings. When we come to Christ, we become Christians, we adopt a new way of thinking. We adopt a new way of life. We are new, Bible says, creatures, new creations in Christ Jesus. But we're not completely changed because the old nature is still there within us until we actually eventually go to meet Jesus in heaven. There is a pressure from the world. And so what happens is that if we don't keep that tension there, we spring back to where we were before and our old ways will dominate. Now, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he describes it like this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one translation says this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. And so the elasticity effect is that the world will be continually pulling us away from our new life in Christ. And so we need to remind ourselves of our commitment and what actually Jesus means to us and what his call is upon our lives. With that, we're going to read Mark chapter 8. And Brian and Liz Campbell are going to come and do that. Please follow if you can. If not, just listen.
1: So yes, Mark chapter 8, and we're reading from the NIV. So during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry... They will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance his disciples answered but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them how many loaves do you have jesus asked seven they replied he told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side.
2: The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, Is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear, and don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking round. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, "'Don't go into the village.'" Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, "'Who do people say that I am?' They replied, "'Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets.'" "'But what about you?' he asked." Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him.
1: He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross "'and follow me. "'For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, "'but whoever loses his life for me "'and for the gospel will save it. "'What good is it for a man to gain the whole world "'yet forfeit his soul? "'Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? "'If anyone is ashamed of me and my words "'in this adulterous and sinful generation,' the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him, and when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels.
0: Thank you very much, Brian and Liz. So well read. So, the Jesus way, This is the way with the greatest and ultimate rewards, but also carries with it great cost. It was, for Jesus, a huge cost to fulfill his Father's will, wasn't it? Because ultimately, as we'll say later on, it meant going to the cross, even though at times, yes, it was his will, but he was human. And as he looked at the cross, he saw all the agony and pain that was going to be his. And so he cries, doesn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, please, if it's possible, is there another way? And then he says, but I understand your way is the best. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Jesus way is not an easy way. Jesus, in this passage, asks his disciples lots of questions. And in fact, in verses 17 to 20, the bit of talking about the Pharisees and the yeast and the the kind of sin of the Pharisees, he asks them nine questions in four verses. It's almost as if he's asking the question before they can get the answers out. We don't hear their answers. So I'm going to ask three questions today from this passage. And let's see what we have as answers. And the first question is, who is Jesus? We find that question that Jesus asks his disciples right in the middle of this chapter. The answer to this question, of course, is at the heart of our faith. So now Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi and he says, first of all, so who do people say that I am? Verse 27. And they say Elijah or John the Baptist come to life. You may remember in chapter 6 we read that John was beheaded. So some thought he'd come back to life. Some thought he was the revived Elijah because there was a belief that some of these prophets would eventually come back to life, or one of the other prophets. So today, I ask the same question, who really is Jesus? What about today? Commonly in what is known as a post-Christian era. A recent Church of England survey found that four in ten people did not believe that Jesus was a real person, and that a quarter of 18 to 34-year-olds believed that he was a mythical or fictional character. And interestingly, those who think that he was a real person, 80% didn't believe he was divine or the son of God, but just a spiritual leader or a prophet. Now, I remember some years ago, and it is some years ago now, we did a survey in the town here. We took a video camera, and uh, we just went around asking people, so who is Jesus? And it was unbelievable. Well, unbelievable to us. Perhaps it's not a surprise that people just didn't know. The vast majority of people just didn't know. Jesus is used as a swear word, and commonly used in that way. And some thought he was kind of a fairy tale character, like the pixies at the bottom of the garden, that he was a mythical, or he might have been a prophet, or is he some kind of leader somewhere? Just people don't know. We assume that people know at least who Jesus is and are making a decision to accept or reject him. But actually, most people don't have enough information to make that decision. Maybe that's our fault. Maybe we're not being like Jesus at the heart of North Yorkshire, which is the vision statement of our church. Maybe we're not talking. Maybe we hide. I don't know. Maybe I hide. Maybe I don't say enough. Maybe it's the church. But people nowadays really don't know who Jesus is. And so who Jesus is, is at the core and heart, the hub, if you like, of our faith. So Jesus then asked his disciples, he said, well, okay. We hear what you're saying. Other people say, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers here, you are the Christ. Now, Matthew chapter 16, we get the same story told, but a fuller version of that conversation. And there, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to say that this has not been revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. It's kind of only really grasped by divine revelation. And that's true. We can give facts to people, but we need to pray that God's Holy Spirit will reveal who Jesus is. It's not something that's naturally accepted and understood. It doesn't actually all make sense from a purely logical point of view. But as soon as the light of God's Holy Spirit shines upon it, then it all does make sense. Jesus goes on to say to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 about this passage. He says, on this rock I will build my church. On that statement of faith, Jesus wants to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that the core and essential characteristic of our faith is that Jesus is the Messiah, but he is the Son of God. When Jesus was born, that was the beginning of his existence. When he was born in Bethlehem, that's when his life started as Jesus. But as the Son of God, he has eternal nature. So he was at the beginning of time. He was before time, and he will exist when time goes. God The Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have no beginning and no end. But Jesus started when he was born in Bethlehem. And the Son of God then came and took upon himself humanity and flesh. So we get that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right from the beginning, the Word was there. The Son of God was there. And then we read on that the Word... The Son of God became flesh. So at that point in time, Jesus was born and Jesus was 100% the Son of God, as well as being 100% human. This is the rock that we build our faith on. Just read We're just going to read for a moment what Paul says about this Jesus and his divine nature. Because it's it's absolutely fundamental to our faith. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. A more comprehensive description of who Jesus Christ is, you would be hard pushed to find. This is the rock on which our faith is built. We might rightly sing, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. And the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One, but God himself is fundamental to our faith. So because of who Jesus is, and I'm careful about my tense here, not was, because Jesus is alive today in heaven, there is power in the name of Jesus. Because of the intrinsic nature of who he is, that's where the power comes from. This was and is the Son of God, and there is power in the name of Jesus. So in Acts chapter 3, the first miracle we read about after Pentecost, we find Peter and John going up in the temple to pray. And they see a lame man there, and they say, well, we don't have any money to give you, but I can give you something that's better and more important than money. And they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And it's because they're calling upon the name of the Son of God and the power and authority that is intrinsic in that name, a man gets up and walks. Now, whether they were surprised, I don't know. I suspect the man was surprised. Everybody else was surprised. There was a hoot nanny about the whole thing. Peter and John were called away, put in prison. And in Acts chapter 4, as Peter then gives his description to the religious leaders and the authorities of what's happened, what does he do? It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus carries eternal and unlimited power and authority because of who Jesus is. He, Jesus, is the Son of God, going the Jesus way means confessing who he really is and embracing that Jesus was the son of God and when we call upon that name believing on who Jesus is we are calling upon the God of heaven to bring salvation direction and change in our lives and it's that name in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow in a coming day It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God because of who Jesus is. So this morning I asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just someone that you pray to, that you bring your requests to, your lucky charm? Or is he really the son of God? Because if he's the son of God, he demands our ultimate worship. He demands being followed. So that's the first question I've got for you this morning. The second question from this passage is, what is Jesus' mission? Jesus' mission was centred and motivated by love for all that he met, and ultimately because of that, what he did on the cross for us who would live thereafter his mission was driven by compassion his mission was driven by selfless love so in the first part of this story of mark chapter 8 we read of the feeding of the 4,000 which was a separate event to the feeding of the 5,000 don't get them confused there are two distinct events it's not that somebody's got their numbers mixed up and can't remember quite right was it four was it five I mean in some respects it's so many people it doesn't really matter the miracle was huge But there were two distinct miracles, and Jesus mentions them in verse 19, if you look. He actually mentions both the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. So he, if you like, vindicating, putting a line under the fact that these are two separate miracles, with two different numbers of loaves and fishes and baskets and all the statistics that go with the story. But we read in verse 2 that it was out of compassion for these people that Jesus did this miracle. They'd been with him for three days and they'd had no food. That's a bit of a tall order. But even though you read there, you get the distinct impression that the disciples weren't too bothered about it. It's kind of, so what, the disciples are say. Jesus said, hold on a minute. We need to do something about this. His whole life was driven by looking at people through the eyes of compassion, with the eyes of compassion and with the eyes of love. He puts himself into their position. And thinks, what would I like God to do for me? I'm going to do, because I am God, I'm going to do that for you. That was the kind of motivation that Jesus had. And because he had that love and compassion, he was able to overcome anything that he met. So Jesus, now that he had established who he was with his disciples, he moves on in his mission to start to unpick and describe his plan going to the cross And you heard it being read. He did that plainly. I don't know what that really means. Was it mean plainly? I think it means he didn't mince his words, perhaps. He was just laying it out without any airs and graces. I'm going to go to the cross, and this is what it's going to mean. Perhaps it's with all its ugliness and with all its pain. It was plain. It was not kind of fanciful. Jesus laid it out in front of them. This was his mission. He says elsewhere, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's Jesus' mission, out of compassion. And our mission as individuals, if we're following Jesus, is to seek the lost and to serve our communities in the same way as Jesus did. We might not be able to feed 4,000 or 5,000, but we can see the needs of our community. And rather than saying, oh, well, that's somebody else's job, social services will deal with that, or whatever. It's our job to see those needs and to say, What would Jesus do if he were here? Would he walk by on the other side? Or would he step in out of love and compassion? You could be overwhelmed by the nature of the problem. 4,000, 5,000 people, men and women needing healing. We could be overwhelmed by the issue that we face in our community as we face need. But the love and compassion of Christ that lives within us, if we follow him, is able to meet those needs. You don't look as if you believe me there, but it's true. We just look at what we've been doing this last little while in the town with the living rooms and the overwhelming need for people to find a place where they are respected and where they're shown the love of Christ. The the need is overwhelming but we're stepping in because we're moved by compassion and love. Yes, the social services can do things, the mental health services can do things, the NHS can do things and we praise God for all that they do. But there's a place for us in the community to serve like Jesus served and to bring his kingdom in. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. And the cross was central to his mission and he loved the world so much that that's what motivated him. He sought out those who were marginalised and the needy. And then we come to the story of the man in Bethsaida. Interesting story. Blind men were looked down upon, or blind women were looked down upon in that culture as those who have been judged by God. So, in another one, another situation where there was a blind man, they, people came to him and said, well, who, who sinned? Was it the man or was it his parents? It was looked as if God had judged you because you couldn't see. So blind people were ostracised and were pushed to the margins of society. Jesus is always looking out, isn't he? He's always going through town, as you read it, looking out for those who are on the margins, those who are pushed to the side of society. So this miracle is found only in Mark. And uniquely, it's a two-stage miracle. It's the only two-stage miracle that we have of Jesus'. So why did it take two shots for Jesus to heal the man? Was it that Jesus failed the first time round? Couldn't do a good enough job and he had to have a second bash? Was that it? I think not. Only my suggestion. Was it because the man didn't have enough faith? Could have been. The answer is, I actually don't know. Or was it, perhaps, to teach us that we ought not to expect the results that we want immediately? I think that is a lesson. It might not be the lesson. It's a lesson I want to pick up on this morning. All this business about spitting into his eyes, I'm not going to go into, not in this coronavirus world that we live in right now. There was no coronavirus around then. I imagine there was plenty of other nasty diseases. But maybe we can learn from this that sometimes when we pray, we don't get the answers we want. First off, we've got to wait. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable, and he specifically tells at Luke 18:1 the reason why he's telling them the parable. He says, "I'm telling you this parable of the persistent widow, so that you will pray and not give up." That's what he says. And you know, we have to learn that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way and in the time that we want. What we can guarantee is that God will answer our prayers, but it might be in his way, and it might be in his timing. Now, I'm going to show you a video now of a man called Michael, who's one of the guys that we've been working with for some years on and off now, one of the cohort that comes to Discovery Steps. He's an alcoholic, and um, we could give up working with people like that, because it's hard. It can be very, very soul-destroying. It can be very difficult because sometimes we don't see the results that we want to see. Despite our prayer, despite our compassion and despite that person's desire but sometimes we get some breakthroughs. and I don't want you to just watch this. It's just three minutes. So Michael, we're here in the prayer room of the living rooms and uh, you've just told me a wonderful story about how God's been answering some prayer for you. you could you just explain it to us please? Yeah.
3: Uh, I ended up in hospital because I had a seizure. I've, I've had seizures, you know, for a good while. But while I was in hospital this time, although I was alcoholic and, uh, you know, I was suffering from withdrawals and stuff, the hospital tried to help with medication. Anyway, like, when I was saying prayers, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd be cheeky. <laughs> I thought I'd be cheeky. And uh, asked the Lord, could He help me with my drink problem? Because I was shaking, you know, uncontrollably and stuff. So I I asked the Lord. First time I've ever asked Him for anything, because I I, I didn't think I should. Because you know, like I haven't been a good person, and I really want to be a good person. But anyway, I asked the Lord, could 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 He uh, help me? You know, with my withdrawals and. he helped me because uh, I've, I've wanted to stop drinking for a while now. How long have you been drinking heavily, Michael? Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. You know, up to six, six litres of wine a day. Yeah. I thought I'd be cheeky enough to ask the Lord while I was praying, you know, to help me stop drinking and stuff. Anyway, I'm out of hospital, didn't have a drink at the hospital, come out of hospital. And uh, I've told Gail who I live with, you know, she's a lovely lady and i help look after her. The Lord answered, you know, I don't want to drink, Fantastic. I've got no shakes. Fantastic. You know. And uh I just wanted the people to know that like the Lord is there and if, although you might be praying for other people and stuff, mm. you can pray for yourself as well and you can ask the Lord for favours like I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And he'll answer you Fantastic. you know and he, you know and when he answers you he's letting you know that he's there yeah and that you know and i've got such an overwhelmed feeling mm. i've had to come and tell Pastor Stay, Yeah. you know because i wanted to know you know like i wanted to tell other people you know about my experience you Know, I've asked him the Lord for something for myself, right? And He's given me it. Well, and praise I praise the Lord. the Lord,
0: yeah. I praise the Lord. Well, bless you, Michael. We're going to pray that God blesses you and that this is a, a new step on your relationship with Him because we baptized you, didn't we? It's about South two years, BC, two years yeah. ago now, yeah. It was looking uh, cold, yeah, yeah. But this is part of your new journey with God. God bless you, Michael, yeah. God bless you, right? Thank you. What a powerful story and some very profound things actually Michael has said there. You see we baptised because he came to faith, he claimed to come to faith and we baptised him in Saltburn 18 months ago in the water, as he said it was cold, in front of hundreds of people at the beach. But you know he's gone back in the meantime and we've had to pray and he's come back and we prayed for him. So we haven't given up and I think that's the message from that little part of the scripture is to pray and not give up, not to expect things to happen straight away. Now I don't know, he might have some more relapses, I don't know, but I believe that he's not had a drink over the last few weeks since, since he came out of hospital, which for somebody who's been drinking that amount is quite an amazing thing. We continue to pray, we just don't give up because God is God. Jesus is the Son of God and we follow him and this is his mission. So my third and final point this morning is what is Jesus's call? And clearly in this passage at the end, Jesus said, if you want to come after me, if you want to embrace my mission, if you want to know life to the full, then you need to follow me. It's amazing what happened because after Jesus had told disciples he was going to go to the cross, Peter rebukes him, doesn't he? And I think maybe, you know, we criticise Peter. It was for the right reason. He didn't want to see his Lord and Saviour go to the cross. You know, it wasn't the wrong reason. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't saying that Peter was Satan. He was just saying that this was another attempt at the enemy to derail his mission. Interestingly, if you read the passage, it says that Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and then he rebuked them. I wonder what was happening in that turn. Was he looking at his disciples thinking, I've got to go to the cross for you. Don't let anybody derail me. Was that what it was all about? I don't know. He was always thinking and putting... People in front of his mind as he looked towards the cross the secret of following jesus is to look for the long term not just the short for jesus it was a short-term pain huge pain in, in giving his life and we're going to take communion in a few minutes and we'll be remembering that but he had the long term the bible says it was for the joy that was set before him the long term that he endured the cross persecuted christians around the world are taking the long-term view they're not taking the easy view and saying, okay, we'll just forget about Jesus. We'll just say what we need to say to get out of jail, to get out of pain. They're taking the long-term view. They're looking ahead. It says of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 that he chose rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short term. He regarded the disgrace of, for the sake of Christ as of a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead. He was looking to the final goal. And in this world where we expect immediate answers to things and in instant gratification, it's easy for us to say we'll put our pleasure before the long term. The, the Jesus way says you need to take the long term view and that may require short term pain. If you're going to come after me, you need to take up your cross. That's not easy. That's tough. That's a choice that you've got to make. And it might mean pain. It might mean sorrow. And it might mean loss. He says, if you need to lose your life, if you're going to follow me, to gain life. This is no lily-livered stuff. You may suffer loss in this world to gain the riches of Christ. Where are our priorities in following Jesus? He says, if you're ashamed of me, God's going to be ashamed of you. Let's not be ashamed as we follow Jesus. Peter was ashamed, you remember, as he went to that coal fire when Jesus was taken for the cross and people said, oh, you're with Jesus, not me. We forgive Peter for that, don't we? How many times have we walked away from situations where we thought, I'd rather not get involved in that. It's too difficult. And we've been a bit ashamed, haven't we? We've all done that. Maybe we've not spoken against Jesus, but we've walked away from situations that we should have said something in. Rather the omission of saying something. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And part of following Jesus is that we identify with Christ. And part of that is baptism. So we're going to be baptising on Easter Sunday morning. Here in the church we have two people we hope are going to be baptized They've said that they're interested in being baptised. Maybe you've never been baptised by full immersion. That's one way of saying I'm going to follow Jesus. Because baptism is the Jesus way. Baptism means I'm showing that I'm dying to myself. I'm identifying with Christ in his death, and I'm saying, "The past is gone. I am following Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And I'm rising about out of the water, declaring that I stand with the risen Christ in my new life." What a wonderful way of following Jesus and declaring our faith. The old hymn says, "Follow, follow. I will follow Jesus. Anywhere, everywhere. I will follow on. Follow follow. I will follow Jesus. Everywhere he leads me, I will follow on. So that's the call. This is the Jesus way. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. What's his mission? Its mission is to show the love of Jesus in its dynamic and powerful way to change lives, and we must do that too. And his call is for us to follow. I wonder this morning if we're all following Jesus. If we can be challenged again to follow Jesus, the Son of God, and to know his mission his power his peace his direction in our lives today Amen we're going to take communion now you're all welcome if you love the Lord Jesus you're welcome to stay and join us for communion right now this is a moment when we remember Jesus and what he did as he promised to do there in that passage we read today this is a moment when we hear God knocking on our lives again and saying follow me I'm calling you to follow me. Yes, it may be costly, but I tell you, this is the way that gives life and life to all the full.